Hello. Are you guys all refreshed after that nice long break with some coffee and some little snacks? Great. Well, this morning, um, I'm going to switch it up. I'm a bit of a walker, so you might see me pacing back and forth. Excited to be here with you this morning. It's such a rich chapter that, or book, that we're studying. And we've been able to go through the first and second chapter this morning. I'm not going to lay out a lot of the historical context for you. Tiffany did a really good job of that. Um, But there are a few key points that I am going to hit again because they are so important to this third chapter that we will be studying. We know that Galatians was written by Paul to the Galatians. And what he was doing is he was writing this letter because these Judaizers were coming into the church and really undermining central New Testament doctrine of justification by faith. They had come into the Galatian church and really began teaching that they must become Jewish converts in order to be saved, teaching that all these works, you know, if you do these Jewish customs, A, B, C, and D, then you can become a Christian. And it was really this false teaching, and Paul writes this letter, and it's such an urgent matter to him, it's so important, that it's actually the only letter that he writes that he does not commend the church. And I think that that omission really reflects the urgency to defend justification by faith, how important it is. I mean, if Paul, you know, like Tiffany said, he got right to it. And that's kind of my personality, too. You want to get right to the point. And he does that because it was such an important issue. So this morning in chapter 3, he's really going to defend justification by faith, works versus faith. And he's going to do that in two ways. I kind of like to break down uh, the teaching. And we will see that he will defend justification By faith, one, through experience, he's going to go to the Galatians and say, remember your experience of salvation by faith. And then secondly, he's going to use truth. So he's going to use the word of God to defend justification by faith. Anyway, let's get right to this morning in verse 1. All right. Oh, foolish Galatians. Wow. We don't have to go very far before we just kind of need to stop and camp out because that's a pretty strong statement right there. Oh, foolish Galatians. And the word foolish, it really denotes um, not a lack of intelligence, but a lack of obedience. So what Paul is saying is, it's not that you didn't know, because you knew. I taught you the word. You know. So it's not that you didn't know, it's the fact that you are being disobedient to what I taught you. And it's this strong statement of disobedience. He says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? I think Paul, he's really disappointed right now. He's really disappointed in their lack of stability. And I would even venture to say he's hurting. You know, Tiffany mentioned that he spent some time with the Galatians. He taught them. He encouraged them. He was with them. He really poured a lot of himself into the Galatian church. And... He watched them just turn their back on the true gospel, and I can imagine that hurt a little bit. I think some of us know how that might feel. We, we pour into somebody. We're there for them. We, we encourage them, and then they clearly just walk away. They turn their back on what they know is right. You know, I um, have a similar experience in that way. I used to work for Teen Challenge down in Florida, and 
I worked in an adolescent girls' home. So we had these junior high and high school girls who were living very destructive lives. So either their parents or the court system would send them into the home. And it was a 12-month program where in the same building they went to school, they lived, they were taught the word. It was really an incubator to pull out those destructive habits and fill them with the word and encouragement and love. And it was probably the hardest thing I ever did. I remember just crying out to God at the difficulty of loving people who did not want to be loved, who were rebellious. Well, they wanted to be loved, but they didn't want to admit that. And every day, it was pouring into these girls, loving on them, encouraging them. And you would begin to see their demeanor change when they knew that people were loving them. And they started making healthy choices, and they started following God, and it was exciting to see these young girls flourishing. Well, I ended up leaving, coming back to Missouri to work for ministry, and um, eventually I started receiving Facebook requests from these girls who had gotten out of the program and wanted to be my friend. And of course, you know, I had about six girls, and over a period of time, all but one of those girls I saw on Facebook went right back to that just destructive lifestyle. Uh, it amazed me because when I was with them, they were flourishing. And now I, I looked at them, and they were right back to the drinking and the sexual immorality. And it broke my heart because I poured so much of myself into them. And this is what Paul's experience. He poured so much into these Galatians. And they turned their back on him, and it hurt it really hurt him. He says, Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He's saying, I was with you. I made known to you the true gospel of Jesus Christ. You have no excuse. And what he really is doing right now is he's setting the stage. He's setting the stage and saying, Jesus Christ's sacrifice on Calvary paid for your sins, and it was enough. And your human works do not need to, um, to supplement that. Our works do not need to supplement what Christ did on Calvary. Um, Hebrews 7.25, this is a good verse. You might want to write this down. Hebrews 7.25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him. In other words, he is able to save completely those who draw near to him. Christ paid it completely. There's nothing we need to do. There are no works that we have to do because Christ paid it completely. So what we're going to do, I talked about Paul's really going to break this down according to experience and according to truth. And he's going to start with experience in verse 2. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Experience is powerful isn't it? Experience fuels us. It fuels our testimony. And what it really does is it helps us connect with people as we're sharing the gospel. Our testimony makes it powerful to us, which makes it powerful for other people. You know, I'm sure many of you who have had that experience of salvation can remember a lot of the details, where you were at, who you're with. I can remember the lighting in the room because that moment was so vivid for me. I remember everything about it because it was powerful because it was when Christ came into my life and he changed me from the inside out. I was a new creation. 
That's a powerful testimony. And he's saying to the Galatians, listen, do you not remember your experience? You were saved by faith, not by works. Your own experience tells you you were saved by faith and not by works. Verse 3, are you so foolish? He goes back to their disobedience. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Our flesh, it's uh, quite tricky. Our flesh wants to reason justification by accomplishment of the law. I think a lot of us, at least I know that I do, I have this struggle wanting to do A, B, C, and D. Uh, Part of us really struggle um, with grace because... We want to do something. Maybe we recognize we didn't earn it, but maybe we want to do something to maintain it, to feel like we're doing something for Christ. Um, If you think about, Tiffany really touched on a lot of the religions in the world, and all but Christianity really reflect this works-based mentality. If you do A, B, C, and D, then you will obtain A, B, C, and D. Uh, Christianity alone is no works. It's about salvation through faith. And I think that really has infiltrated the world system that we live in. We want to work to do something. We want to do something about it. We want to put these standards in place to maintain the grace that we have received. But what that does is it shows our lack of trust in God. When we take trust in God out of the equation, we're nullifying grace on our behalf. And when I think about works and having to maintain it, it really poses a lot of questions for me. I don't know about you, but I was thinking about this, and I was like, okay, well, how good is good enough? How do we know how good is good enough? Or how do we know what is good enough for God? And does the bad that I do cross out the good, and how much more good do I have to have than bad it It really poses a lot of questions for us, right? Um, The truth is, Christ alone is perfect. And um, these questions can really weigh us down. And the the fact is that Christ alone is perfect. Because um, the truth is, we can't be perfect. We would have to be perfect in action, in thought, in motive. That's difficult. Only Christ is perfect. Matthew 5.20 tells us, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees were pretty good about following the law, weren't they? They followed it down to the letter. They prided themselves in that. So how can we be even, how could we be better than that? Well, we can't. We can't. Christ alone is perfect. And what he's saying to the Galatians is, You started out in faith. You started out in faith, but now you're operating out of the flesh. Verse 4, it says, it's really powerful. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? He's saying, how horrible that you suffered everything for nothing. You know, they suffer persecution, trial, tribulation, suffering. You know this as Christians, that there's a lot to persevere through. And he's saying you persevere, but now all of that means nothing if you're going to operate out of the works. All that perseverance means nothing if you're going to operate out of works. 
So he really addressed this issue and defended it with their experience, but now he's going to go to the word. Okay, he's going to use truth to defend justification by faith. Verse 6. Just as Abraham believed, just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now these um, Judaizers were using the Old Testament and were using Abraham as an example to defend justification by works. So Paul says, I'm going to use the exact same references and I'm going to use it to um, defend justification by faith. He's going to use the Old Testament. He's going to reference Abraham, and we're going to see that throughout this chapter. Here, Paul really emphasizes Abraham believed. Abraham believed. And if we look at the life of Abraham, he was a man who trusted God with everything. Um, He had his weaknesses, as we all do, but he believed God. He didn't have to have all the answers. He didn't need to have it all figured out. In fact, there was a lot Abraham didn't know. And there was a lot that God hid from him and just asked, believe in me. And Abraham believed God to the highest degree that he could possibly believe God. He really emphasizes that. And he, he's referencing Genesis 12:3 here. That was by Abraham, Abraham's faith that he was considered righteous. It was because of his faith he was found righteous. Verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. He's saying, we are children of God if we follow Abraham's example. In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul saying, We have a promise that we're going to be justified the same way as Abraham. I love the promises of God. A lot of times when I find one, I'll highlight it or I'll write it down because that's a promise that God has given us. And he promises justification in the same way that Abraham was justified. Now, before we move on to verse 10, we're going to break down the rest of the book a couple different ways. I I like to do that. It helps me to understand it. Paul is going to give us, um, show us three things in the rest of the book. He's going to show us the curse of the law. He's going to show us the promise of the covenant. And we'll go through these. And he's going to show us the purpose of the law. Verses 10 through 14, he's going to show the curse of the law. So let's start there. Verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. He's referencing Deuteronomy 27, 26 here, and that um, failure to keep the law is a curse. It's a curse. James 2.10 tells us, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. So what James is saying is that you could keep every single law, every single one, but even if in your mind you maybe messed up on one, you become accountable for all of it, for all of it. And that's a curse. That's a curse that the law has brought 
Um, but what Paul's really talking about here is this difference between civil righteousness and spiritual righteousness. He's talking about rules and works versus faith. And really what it boils down to is that, and this is going to be hard because this is so ingrained in our culture, is that being a good person is just not good enough. You know, we live in America, a Christian nation, and many people um, really have this mentality, well, if I'm just a good enough person, if I'm just a good enough person, then God will accept me into heaven. And that is just, that's false. And that's a hard thing for some people to hear, but we have to communicate the gospel and its accuracy. And being a good person is just not good enough. He goes on in verse 11. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. And he's referencing Habakkuk 2.4 here in justification by faith alone. See, he goes right back to the Old Testament and uses and defends justification by faith alone. Verse 12. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Redeemed is a word that really means buying a slave's freedom. So when we hear that Christ redeemed us, it means that Christ paid the price for us, for our freedom. And what Christ's death really did is um, it really exhausted the wrath of God. And it really purchased our sin to slavery. And that's what Christ has done. He has redeemed us. Verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. What he's saying is that the blessing of Abraham came to the Gentiles that all might be saved in the same manner that Abraham was saved. Again, it's that promise. So we've seen the curse of the law. Now we're going to go in verses 15 through 18, and we're going to look at the promise of the covenant. Okay? Verses 15 through 18, the promise of the covenant. Verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. And he says, he starts out by giving what he calls a human example of a man-made covenant because that's something we can understand. We can all understand a contract. You know, it's something that once it is signed, you can't change it, you can't add to it, you can't annul it, it's set in stone. And he's saying, if you can understand that a man-made contract cannot be changed, how much more of a promise that an unchanging God has made to you? Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And we don't have to worry, well, is he going to back out on his promise? Well, we know that God is an unchanging God, and he won't back out on his promises. Now, in the next few verses, Paul's going to go right back to Abraham in referencing the Old Testament, verses 16 and 17. Now, the promises we made were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. 
the law, which came 430 years afterward, listen, this is important, the law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Oh, right, so he is going to really give a good defense here that's really going to kind of shut down what the Judaizers were teaching. He's saying the law that Moses brought came 430 years after Abraham, right? So that kind of throws in this kink into their justification by works because if the law did not exist when Abraham was living, then how could he have been justified by the law? He wasn't. The promise that God made to Abraham was made because of his faith. And that's a very strong defense for justification by faith because the Old Testament is showing, listen, the law didn't exist. So Abraham, Abraham cannot have been justified by his, by his works or by the law. Verse 18. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Paul's saying that because the promise of inheritance, which came through Jesus Christ, was made before the law, the law cannot justify because God's covenant by faith cannot be rendered void. And we're going to go look at another example of this that I would like for everybody to turn to Romans chapter 4 with me. This Romans chapter 4 was also written by Paul, and it's really defending justification by faith using Abraham. So it's another great resource for us as we look at this. Romans chapter 4, verse 9. And I'm going to read it from the message, so it's going to sound a little off, but I really like the way the message portrays it. Do you think for a minute that this blessing is only pronounced over those of us who keep our religious ways and are circumcised? Or do you think it is possible that the blessing could be given to those who never heard of our ways, who were never brought up in the disciplines of God. We all agree, don't we, that it was by embracing what God did for him that Abraham was declared fit before God. Now think, was that declaration made before or after he was marked by the covenant rite of circumcision? That's right, before he was marked. That means that he underwent circumcision as evidence and confirmation of what God had done long before to bring him into this acceptable standing with himself, an act of God he embraced with his whole life. Verse 9 uh, says that Abraham was declared fit before God, or by God before the act of circumcision. Okay? The act of circumcision was evidence of his faith. So he wasn't saved because of the works the act of circumcision, he was saved because of his faith, and the act of circumcision was a evidence of, of that faith. The word promise here that um, we're going to look at here, we'll, we'll go into reading, we'll pick it back up, and it means further that Abraham is father of all people who embrace what God does for them while they are still on the outs with God, as yet unidentified as gods in an uncircumcised condition. It is precisely these people in this condition who are called set right by God and with God. Abraham is also, of course, father of those who have undergone the religious rite of circumcision, not just because of the ritual, but because they were willing to live in the risky faith embrace of God's action for them, the way Abraham lived long before he was marked by circumcision. That famous promise 
God gave Abraham that he and his children would possess the earth was not given because of something Abraham did or would do. It was based on God's decision to put everything together for him, which Abraham then entered when he believed. So he says in verse 13 that the promise given to Abraham was not given to him because of something he did or would do. It's not like God said, well, I know Abraham's going to end up doing this, so I'm going to give him that promise now. No, God decided to put it all together for Abraham before that. And the word promised here actually comes from a Greek word that means that the promise was given not on his merit, okay, but on the grace of God. On the grace of God. There was no work involved to obtain this promise that God had given him. We'll finish off in verse 14. If those who get what God gives them only get it by doing everything they are told to do and filling out all the right forms properly signed, that eliminates personal trust completely and turns the promise into an ironclad contract. He's going to go back to contract. That's not a holy promise. That's a business deal. A contract drawn up by a hard-nosed lawyer and with plenty of fine print only makes sure that you will never be able to collect. Did you hear that? Never be able to collect. But if there is no contract in the first place, simply a promise, and God's promise at that, you can't break it. So he goes back to this picture of a contract because we can get that. Um, If we try to earn our righteousness through works, we're essentially trying to fulfill a contract, aren't we? Um, I'm going to show you something. I was thinking about a contract. What would a contract look like for us today if we had to have one? What would that contract look like for a Christian? And so I did some research, and there are 613 laws that we would have to fulfill, not just in action, but in our thoughts and in our motives. And I don't know about you, but I wanted to kind of research these laws. There are 613 laws. You notice it's not even going to roll out all the way because it's so long. 613 laws, guys, not just in action, but in word and thought and motive. That's kind of a crazy to live up to, right? Um, This is a list of works. This is a contract. But we're not asked to fulfill a contract. Christ wants a relationship with us. He wants a relationship. He's saying a contract, it eliminates personal trust completely. It eliminates the relationship. Christ doesn't want a contract with us. He wants a relationship with us. I don't know about you, but I would much rather have the relationship and by faith than this contract uh, and having to do it to fulfill it by our works. Let's continue in verse 19. That was, um, we were now able to look at the promise of the covenant, and now we're going to look at the purpose of the law. And we've kind of put like a lot of negative emphasis on the law, but there is a purpose for it. There is a purpose for the law. Verse 19. Well, why the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, that God is one. So what the law does, it's telling us what the law does is it reveals man's sinfulness. I kind of think about this picture of opening a door. It reveals our sinfulness and that we can't do it on our own and that we need Christ. So the three things that specifically the law does, 
is it declares our guilt. Okay? So it's showing us that we are sinners. It drives us to Christ. Seeing our desperate need for Christ. It shows us our need for Christ. And then it directs us in a life of obedience. Okay? It's restraining us from sin. It does have a purpose. It's a good purpose. Verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. Okay, so God does not work against himself. There is a balance with works and faith. Works and faith work in harmony together. They do. James 2.14 says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Faith doesn't nullify works, okay? Works are an outflow of our faith. When we come to know Christ, we want to do good things. We want to serve people. We want to help people. If we went to people and said, well, I can't do anything for you, but I love you. Well, do you love me because you're not willing to help me? Works are an outflow of our faith. They work together. Verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. In verse 24 and here in verse 25, we saw the word guardian. Guardian also means schoolmaster. And I love this picture that Paul's going to give. A guardian um, or a schoolmaster back in Paul's time was often a slave, sometimes a freed man, who would take a family's sons to school. Okay? They were not the instructor. The The schoolmaster was not the instructor. It directed the children to school, and it made sure that they got there safely to the instructor. The the schoolmaster brought them to the instructor. And I love this because it's such a beautiful picture of the law and Christ. The law, it has guided us. It has instructed us. But it, it has not instructed us, but it has guided us to Christ, who is our instructor. Okay? That's the purpose of the law. It has guided us and it has done its job it does have a job it brought us to christ and christ is our instructor we'll kind of continue this picture in verse 26 for in christ jesus you are all sons of god through faith sons of god through faith what it's saying is that as sons of god through faith we no longer need the schoolmaster we are now under the instructor, and therefore we have received, we have become heirs, and we have received the rights of a son. Okay, so the law, we were young, the law guided us to Christ, who is our instructor, and now that we are in Christ, we are sons of God through faith, and we have received the rights of a son. I love it. We're going to finish up here in verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, 
There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Paul really unfolds this concept of being in Christ. He's saying, you were saved in your faith. By faith, you were saved. And now that you are in Christ Jesus, there are three results to that salvation. One, you are sons of God. Two, you are now surrounded by believers. And three, you are heirs to the promise. Galatians, you were saved by faith. You are sons of God. You are surrounded by these people who love you and you have heirs. You are heirs to the promise. And why are you living by these works? I'm just going to wrap this up. Um, Paul opened this, as Tiffany had said, by really pointing out Christ. And I want to get to that. I want to get to Christ in this message this morning. I have struggled with works for a long time. I want to, I want to mark the checklist. Some of you may, um, yeah, <laughs> some of you may relate to me in that way. I know that Christ saved me, not because of anything that I did, but because he chose me and he loved me and he saw all the sin. He saw all the mistakes that I made, but he still chose to love me. And he changed my life from the inside out. And that's what he wants to do for every single person in this place this morning. It's not about what you have to do. You don't have to do anything to earn Christ's love for you. He loves you. And no matter what you do, even after you become saved, Christ is always there loving you, pouring out his grace, asking you to be in relationship with him. He saw the Galatians and his heart was broken. Because they started out in faith, but they were ending in works. They were not trusting their father. 